Welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast from the Harvard Center for Primary Care, featuring discussions on the changing healthcare landscape. I'm Thomas Kim. I'm joined by Audrey Provenzano and David Rosenthal. And today we're bringing you a lightning round journal club, looking at three articles. And then at the end, we'll share a pearl with you, uh, something not necessarily related to medicine, but we've enjoyed and want you to check out. So, uh, Audrey, why don't you kick us off? All right. So... This week, I'm talking about a paper that was recently published in JAMA Psychiatry entitled Effect of Peer Comparison Letters for High-Volume Primary Care Prescribers of Quetiapine in Older and Disabled Adults, a Randomized Control Trial. So the lead author in this is Adam Zakarni, and the second author is Michael Barnett, who is a friend of the pod. He has been on before, and he's a really brilliant researcher. So the issue these researchers wanted to look at was the overprescribing of atypical antipsychotics. They focused on quetiapine and um, Ercequil, and they wanted to see if sending letters to high-volume uh, prescribers of Ercequil or quetiapine in primary care would change their prescribing behavior. And specifically, the content of the letters uh, showed a comparison to peers in terms of how much more these prescribers were using quetiapine than other prescribers. So the background on this is that the meds are, they're only FDA approved for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and, you know, certain circumstances and depression, but they're really commonly used off-label for things like insomnia, agitation, and dementia. I, I don't know if you guys were taught this in medical school, but I was. We would hear when we're at the VA or community hospital for a really agitated older adult at night, you can try, you know, like 2.5 milligrams of this. Did you guys hear that when you were training? Yeah, I've seen it used quite a bit, actually, in off-label uses. Yeah. Sure, various antipsychotics. Sure, yeah, definitely. So, you know, there are some harms that have been demonstrated for this, including risk of death, cognitive decline, extrapyramidal symptoms, and of course, sedation, which I suppose is a point in some of those situations. Um, and professional societies have really been trying to reduce this use of these medications. There's a Choosing Wisely campaign that was put on by the American Psychiatric Association. There are a bunch of um, FDA warnings and the American Geriatric Society as well. A few little facts about quetiapine. It's really common medication. There are about 2.8 million patients who fill a prescription for it per annum. 75% of it is off-label or lacks evidence. 75% kind of is mind-boggling. And CMS has been really wanting to address this, so they took this behavioral economics approach with a peer comparison. Um, you know, this has been shown to be effective in things like antibiotic prescribing, sending providers feedback saying, you know, you use antibiotics in 20 times more visits than your other um, peer providers in your clinic or something like that. So they wanted to look at it on a national scale. It was a really well-done study. It was an RCT. They targeted physicians with really high prescription rates to Medicare patients. They used a Medicare database. Um, it was between 2015 and 2017 and included patients enrolled in Medicare. They targeted the 5,055 highest volume primary care prescribers of quetiapine, um, which was about 5% of all primary care prescribers of quetiapine, so like the top 5%. The prescribers were then randomized to two arms, one to get a placebo letter and the other arm to get the peer comparison letters, which was the intervention letter. And the placebo letter was like very generic looking. I'll put some pictures up of the letters up on our Twitter and you can look at them in one of the appendices of the paper. So the 
placebo letter was very generic looking. It was on CMS letterhood, so it looked official, but it was very um, bureaucratic. You need to enroll in opt-in for Part D, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the second letter that was sent out um, was basically the same content, and it just said, this letter seeks to clarify the previous letter, and then drones on again about Part D enrollment. For the treatment arm, there was actually three letters, and they were also on CMS letterhood. They were very scary looking. <laughs> There's like a red graph um, showing your prescribing habits versus your peer prescribing. And it said at the top, your Seroquel prescribing is under review by the Center for <laughs> Program Integrity, like in bold Yikes. letters. Yeah. And and then it spelled out, you know, you prescribed 188% more than your peers. So it was three pages mm. long. And in total, the intervention arm got three of these letters. The primary outcome was measured at the prescriber level and was specified as a cumulative total number of quetiapine days supplied by PCPs in the nine months after the intervention, so the first mailing of the letter. And it counts the number of, of quetiapine pills at pharmacies paid for by Medicare Part D that were attributed to the targeted prescriber, so the prescriber that got the letter. And then they also looked at total number of days of quetiapine over an extended duration of two years to see if it would be like a durable intervention. Mm. They also looked at mortality and hospital use. Okay, so what did they find? A little bit about table one, the people included in the study. So there are 5,055 prescribers, about half were internists, about half family physicians. 82% of them were male. I don't know what to make of that. I emailed, emailed the authors, but I haven't heard back. But, you know, this is the top 5% of prescribers. So I don't know what it means that male physicians, it seems like, are much more likely to prescribe quetiapine aggressively. Internal medicine and family medicine are not specialties that are particularly overrepresented by men. So you would imagine that all of the physicians who are eligible uh, would be pretty close to 50-50, if not probably more women. Were they able to characterize uh, more about the physicians besides those things, like their specialty and their, their gender? So um, in, listed in Table 1, there might be more in the appendices, but mm. the characters of the prescribers, really they just say the quetiapine day supplied in the nine-month baseline period. Um, low-value patients and then guideline concordant patients and then the sex and the specialty which is um, general practitioner family medicine or internal medicine i don't know the difference between gp and family medicine internal medicine but um that's it at least that's in the table one of the central part of the paper hmm. maybe maybe men physicians uh at least prescribers of quetiapine are more um, influenced by AstraZeneca's marketing than female prescribers are. Maybe. <laughs> or we're, uh, we're, we're more lazy and just want to try different uh, psychotropics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure how to read into exactly. I'm <laughs> um, not sure how to read into that. Yeah, exactly. So their findings were really, really impressive. Um, over the course of the nine months, the treatment arm prescribed 11% fewer quetiapine days per prescriber versus the control arm. And this change of in behavior was in, did endure over the course of two years. So it wasn't just like a six-month thing and then it bounced back to where it had been. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a, another really gratifying finding. There was a larger decrease in prescribing for low-value indications as opposed to guideline concordant indications. So 
a decrease of 5.9% versus 2.4%. So again, you know, for people who are using it for things like agitation, it decreased more than for an indication like psychosis. There was no evidence of significant levels of substitution for other agents in the same class or use of other sleep aids. And uh, there was no difference in the nine-month mortality, ED visits, admissions, or psychiatry visits between the two arms. So it's a really impressive study. Um, you know, the design and the analyses were, I think, really well done. And it kind of demonstrated really clearly that receiving a series of pair comparison letters resulted in, you know, significant and durable changes in prescribing habits and no evidence of harm to patients. You know, weaknesses of the paper, it was only Medicare patients, and, you know, one could one could hypothesize that these changes in behavior would also be seen in Medicaid and private insurance patients. Um, but obviously, that's not shown conclusively. And, um, you know, they, they, there's an accompanying editorial by Josh Liao and Emil Navati that's really good and worth reading, um, as well as the paper. And they point out, you know, it's not clear if the effect is going to erode if there are a bunch of behavioral health, economics, or nudge interventions that involve sending letters of this nature, you know, threatening letters from CMS if people are just going to be like, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to this. Um, and then the other piece of this that, you know, might speak to its effectiveness is that they, they really targeted prescribers who use this medication at the highest rates. It's not clear if, if they sent the letters to prescribers who were kind of more middle of the road it would have had the same effect. So that's uh, the Sakarni and Barnett paper. It's really impressive, and um, I think that it demonstrates a really interesting way of thinking about how to change physician behavior, which we all know is really hard to do. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to point out, I mean, I think you're right. It does, just hearing this for the first time, I think it's that you can reduce uh, and sort of nudge physician behavior by 11% with a, with a strongly worded letter or some peer comparisons um, mm-hmm. is, you know, that's a useful thing to know uh, in terms of how we influence our behavior, whether or not this is the right issue, uh, particular around quetiapine. And in older adults, clearly there's, um, it's, it's hard to know. There's obviously all these warnings about the off-label use. Um, this seems to be Medicare population. So as I was mentioning earlier, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of quetiapine and Seroquel use, actually sort of illicit use, and actually in younger populations, so not the Medicare age. Um, people are using Seroquel. Like, there's actually street value for it um, to manage some of the, um, I think, partly the anxiolytic. It, they use it as an anxiolytic uh, while they're using other um, substances to help them either fall asleep, in particular cocaine, it can, you know, people tend to abuse it with that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it just any any medication that you're trying to influence behavior or trying to trend, this seems like a, a useful tactic. Right. So today I'm going to talk briefly about a recent article in JAMA Internal Medicine from October 22nd, 2018. The article is The Effect of Community Health Worker Support on clinical outcomes of low-income patients across primary care facilities, a randomized control trial by Shreya Kangovi, Nadita Mitra, Lindsay Norton, Rory Hart, Zinchi Zhao, Tamala Carter, David Grande, and Judith Long out of University of Pennsylvania. Um, now, I know this may sound familiar to some listeners out there, as this is the same author, Dr. Kangovi, that was recently featured in an interview by you, Audrey, over the summer um, in Review of Systems. Um, I wanted to feature this paper mainly because, number one, it just came out. 
um, and two had some interesting and what I would describe as some unanticipated findings. Um, so just as an intro and some background, we've talked about community health workers before a bunch on this podcast as potential for number one, bringing trusted lay people from local communities to hire and train in multiple roles to help support patient care. Um, in some cases, uh, that is helping to coach healthy behaviors, in others to navigate complex health systems or even to advocate for patients. Um, previously, Dr. Kangovi and her team had conducted two previous single-centered um, randomized control trials using um, the uh, CHW or a community health worker program called IMPACT, and that stands for Individualized Management for Patient-Centered Targets. I'm going to just say IMPACT from now on. Um, the first trial that she did uh, with IMPACT was with hospitalized patients, and that showed improved access to primary care, mental health, and patient activation while reducing 30-day readmission rates. The second trial that they had, single-site uh, trial, involved outpatients with chronic medical conditions, and that they showed improved hemoglobin A1Cs, uh, BMIs, number of cigarettes per day, and then also mental health and quality of care while reducing hospitalizations. And I don't have the actual studies there, but that's what they note in the paper. This trial <clears throat> in JAMA IM was slightly different. The authors wanted to see if they could scale this kind of impact community health worker model to three different primary care sites uh, in the care of low-income patients. So the first site was a VA medical center clinic. The second was an FQHC. And the third was an academic family practice clinic. So how did they do this? It was a two-arm, single-blind, multi-site tri uh, clinical trial at these three sites. Uh, it took place between January 2015 and March 2016. They included adults greater than 18 with an appointment in the last year, uh, as well as um, the, they had to be residents of eight high-poverty zip codes in Philadelphia. Um, the patients had to be uninsured or publicly insured, and that also included veterans. And then um, the last inclusion was that they had to have received two targeted chronic diseases, and those were diabetes, obesity, tobacco dependence, and hypertension, um, with at least one of those in poor control at the time. So patients were recruited prior to their uh, appointments on the phone, and then at the primary care visit, they could enroll by um, focusing on one of their multiple chronic conditions that was in poor control as a focus for intervention. Um, at that first encounter with the, with the primary care physician, they then were randomized to either usual care with their PCP just doing goal setting um, on, on that one item um, versus uh, the intervention group, which got the, the, still the primary care goal setting um, plus a community health worker support for six months. And the CHWs followed the impact model, which is uh, sort of three stages. There's a goal-setting model, and then there's tailored support, uh, and then connection with long-term support. So at first, what do these community health workers do? They do some open-ended questions at first to assess sort of so socioeconomic determinants of health. The community health workers will then ask sort of what do you think you'll need in order to reach the health goal you set with your doctor? And then they create individualized goals and tailored action plans. Um, the community health workers communicate with the patients at least once a week. And then monthly, uh, they try to have face-to-face -face meetings. Um, uh, if patients get hospitalized during that six-month period, the community health workers would, meet, would visit them in the hospital. 
Um, as I'll say, one of the limitations was that prior to this trial, um, the authors spent each, uh, oftentimes one to three months adapting the impact model for each of the three sites. Hmm. Um, and uh, so a slight limitation that they had to sort of do a lot of consensus building at each site um, to sort of get the fidelity up. Hmm. At the VA, um, they used a veteran community health worker. Um, so their outcome measures were measured at zero, six, and nine months. The primary outcome was the mean change in self-rated physical health using the SF12 physical component summary instrument. Um, they had some pre-specified secondary outcomes. There was a self-rated mental health SF12 um, mental health component. And then they looked at using charts. Uh, the reviewers were using mean changes in patient-selected chronic disease metrics. So if the patient had set a goal for A1C, that was what they were going to look at. They also looked at either BMI, uh, blood pressure, or the cigarettes per day metric. They also um, looked at mean patient activation measures. Um, and then in some of the survey instruments, they had a patient report of sort of high quality of care. We can talk more about that in a little bit. And then lastly, they, they had data for all-cause hospitalization. And the way that they got that data was um, for non-veterans, they were able to use a statewide database in Pennsylvania that has all-comer um, data for hospitalization. Um, for the VA, uh, they were able to use the VA corporate data warehouse hmm. um, to get all of the VA data of hospitalization. Unfortunately, and a huge limitation in my mind, they were not able to use um, to see veteran data uh, for veterans that were hospitalized outside of the VA to link that. And that's because of some crazy firewall privacy issues. Mm. Um, so if there was a veteran that was hospitalized at a VA, um, they would be able to capture that data. But if that veteran then got hospitalized at an outside hospital or a different hospital, that not necessarily uh, would they be able to link that. Um, so, uh, also one of the things they mentioned, they were unable to consistently capture data on ED visits, mm. um, from the all payer, um, statewide database. So they got rid of that as one of their metrics. Okay. So what did they actually find and what did they do? So as their results, um, in their figure one, they showed that they were able, they had 1,339 patients that were screened for eligibility, um, 705 of them. So more than half of them declined. Um, ultimately 529 were randomized, um, 288 to usual care from the, from the PCP and 304 were assigned to the CHW arm. Um, common reasons just, so you know, for declining, um, about 18% were lacking time, about 16% didn't want to work with a community health worker, um, and about 15% did not want to participate in research. Um, participants, the mean age was 52 about 62% were female, 94% um, were African-American, and staggeringly, I wrote this down with a lot of exclamation points, 97.8% <laughs> of the participants had experienced a traumatic event. That's, so um, That's so interesting. Yeah. That, that was a finding in one of... Um, the, this group's uh, prior papers as well. I mean, but I think, yeah, I think I think it kind of speaks to what the community is there, mm -hmm. um, and that it really where they're targeting their interventions. Um, but to I me, I saw also, that. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, this is also a place where community health workers can do a lot of good too, right? Like you know, folks who uh, have had adverse uh, events or trauma, traumatic uh, past. Um, it, it's going to uh, take that uh, 
trusted longitudinal relationship uh, to do the motivational interviewing to 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 build that trust and and uh, especially coming from a lay person there's there's a lot more opportunity there than uh, than having people come to your clinic walls and trying to do it with your with your physician doctor. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Trying to break down some of the the distrust, and this is a way if someone from from your community to help you sort of build trust in in relationship building. Absolutely. Um, so I'll just mention that you know the baseline characteristics were well matched between the the control arm and the intervention arm. Um, table two had sort of the patient outcomes in the study. Um, Notably, none of the primary outcomes met statistical significance, so not in the self-related physical or mental health categories, not in the change of patient activation, nor in chronic disease control. And I think part of that is explained by the fact that everybody got better. Um, people got better in the, in the primary care, uh, the PCP sort of arm, as well as the um, community health worker arm. So there wasn't really, didn't really separate in terms of the intervention from the from the community health worker. Um, however, kind of in their secondary um, outcome analysis, um, this was what I thought was kind of interesting. Um, there was statistically significant reductions in repeat admissions, in 30-day readmissions, and um, almost statistically significant, so a, a p-value of 0.06 hmm. in, in length of stay. Um, what they found basically was that Patients in the intervention arm with the with the community health worker spent about 155 days in the hospital versus 345 days in the control arm. Um, what they found was that the length of stay was generally about 3.1 days less in those who had community health workers. Um, so that was interesting finding. The other things that were at least statistically significant were um, the reported um, patient reported improvements in in sort of the survey instruments on comprehensiveness of care and supportiveness of self-management. Um, so, um, so people generally liked it, um, certainly felt cared for. Um, of note, about 91% of the uh, patients in the intervention arm engaged with the community health workers for the full six months. And so overall, you know, as I was thinking about this paper, it sort of adds to the body of knowledge that community health workers are, are sort of a potential um, addition to our healthcare teams and that they can help patients in very meaningful ways, um, as, as Thomas was saying, outside of the clinic walls, right? Um, and notably, I think the findings, in my humble opinion, are, are, are somewhat modest, at least in this study, that there weren't really significant improvements versus just goal setting with the PCP, at least in, the, in sort of the clinical self-rates of physical health, mental health, and then in sort of the patient activation and disease control. But I think the surprising thing was clearly the reduction in hospitalization length of stay. Um, they, I wasn't really expecting that one as I was going through the paper. I mentioned that there's some limitations in the in the data collection that might skew the results. In particular, um, that not being I'm not sure how the not being able to access veteran hospitalization data outside of the VA might skew their results on hospitalization days. Then um, that could certainly be a confounder to some of their secondary outcome data. But um, I think that I can theorize in my mind that having someone who is seeing you weekly uh, uh, or at least talking to you weekly and then even monthly from your community who visits you in the hospital, you might feel a, a greater sense of support and, and teams might be feeling more comfortable with an earlier discharge um, if you have that level of support. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's really interesting, right? Like the primary outcomes of self-fitted physical health or mental health, like th- those didn't change over six nine months. Um, but there's still something happening, it seems like. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about um, uh, what to expect with community health workers. Is six nine months? You know, does it take longer to to build that uh, build uh, uh, that trust and self self efficacy or those feelings of self efficacy? Um, uh, I don't know. But something seems to be happening, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in their earlier studies, and I and I don't recall exactly, but in certainly one of the the single arm studies or the, the single site studies, I think they did get statistical results, statistical significance in some of those uh, chronic disease metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They were not able to reproduce that here, and what what you don't see here is the difference. Um, I wasn't able to see it in this data, was whether there was differences in each site. So. Was there a difference in the FQHC versus the VA versus the academic practice? That may be, or when you combine them all, there may be no difference. Um, but it could be that certain practices, um, you get skew better or better better differences. It's really interesting. I wonder, I mean, we don't have ED data with this one, but I wonder if, you know, you could hypothesize if people are staying out of the hospital more when they have a CHW, they may stay out of the ED more as well. And um, be interesting to know how that added up if it saved money. I mean, the incredible thing about the, about the study is the the, the design, right? The mm. RCT, like you know, uh, the, these types of social interventions are are often proposed, often studied, but never really done in this type of rigorous manner. So mm-hmm. I think it's uh, a lot of credit to these study authors to really, you know, really test our theory about um, uh, what we think is happening and 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 what we could potentially achieve. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, thing, a lot of uh, interventions are studied in a in, in a much less rigorous approach. So, uh, kudos to to that team for um, uh, really putting this to the test. Yeah, indeed. And- yeah, and I think it speaks to the implementation science of how difficult it is that even even in three sites that are all in the same geographic neighborhood, theory they still have to go and sort of coach these practices <laughs> and convince them to sort of integrate this into their model but the, the randomization is still within each clinic site right so sure i mean i'm not sure how much you, I, I see what you're saying yeah you still have to uh, make it, the model it, work yeah and it takes a lot it just takes a lot to it doesn't scale right instantly and it would be a very challenging thing so you'd have to take this and customize you could take impact a little bit and hopefully scale it but it's still you know each one requires a little bit of finesse and technical assistance to get there, so it's yeah. like it's it's not like you can just turn a switch right. and add community health workers in this model to every mm-hmm. clinic across yeah, every implement, PCP clinic. Implementation is the the hot thing, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. People should check out their website. It's chw.upenn.edu. They have a bunch of information there about their programs and leadership, and they do a lot of trainings and technical assistance. So, if you're interested in bringing a program like this to your health center or clinic, check it out. It's great. Cool. I'm going to bring in a paper from Birth of uh, September of this year. Birth is a traditionally mid, uh, midwifery journal. Uh, it's looking at women uh, from racial or ethnic minorities and low socioeconomic backgrounds uh, and finding that they're receiving more prenatal education. Uh, this is a group out of the University of Nebraska. Uh, first author, first author Min Nguyen, uh, Mohammed uh, Siapush, uh, Brandon Grimm, Gopal Singh, and um, Melissa Tibbetts. So it's an interesting study. I think that uh, I think particularly in the background of 
uh, folks really feeling like if we put in the work of uh, um, uh, education and behavioral change and, and, and teaching and uh, doing all those individual level counseling, uh, can we move the needle on on health outcomes? Uh, thinking about that, we know that with prenatal care, we want um, um, pregnant people to get health education. We think that b- certain behaviors have a big role to play in their birth outcomes, like you know, smoking is clearly tied to low birth weight and pre- preterm birth. Uh, and we want women to have the, the skills and knowledge to take care of themselves. Um, so this study was looking to know, like, is how uh, prenatal, he- prenatal health education um, uh, happening in this country socially pattern? Do, do, do uh, variations in, in, in getting prenatal, prenatal health education, uh, does, do those variations correspond with racial and ethnic and socioeconomic variations as well? Uh, we should know some caveats that there really isn't a, like clear standards nationally around what should be included in uh, prenatal education. Uh, differing bodies have different recommendations. And the, and the literature so far hasn't really studied this. We know that getting less education or less teaching uh, probably is a risk, risk factor for things, but uh, we haven't really studied it that much about who's getting it, how much, how well. Uh, there were a couple smaller studies that showed that black women weren't um, getting as much tobacco and alcohol cessation counseling. Uh, maybe uh, low-income groups were, were not getting that counseling. Um, so this was a, a really big uh, study to uh, try and figure out what is happening here. Are different groups getting more or less uh, education? And they, and they did find that folks um, coming from uh, ethnic and racial minorities and from lower socioeconomic backgrounds actually get more. Uh, the way they did it uh, to get into the methods, uh, they, they used uh, what's called a PRAMS Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System. It's uh, the CDC and uh, each state health department will collaborate to learn about uh, different, uh, learn about what what uh, learn about the pregnancies um, uh, that happened in their state. Uh, basically, uh, almost all states, including uh, and then Puerto Rico and DC, they, they'll look at birth certificate file data and then they'll sample the births that happened in their state uh, to then survey them about two to four months after um, the delivery of a, of a live birth. So uh, they get a mailed questionnaire and then they follow up with the telephone um, interview and then they link it to the birth information. And, and they actually do this for about 83% of live births in the, in the U.S., uh, one of the nice things about using uh, PRAMs is that they actually oversample for underrepresented groups. Uh, you know, OB is often a, a game of um, uh, high stakes, low probability events. So mm. making sure you oversample um, births that uh, suffer from low birth weight or from pre- prematurity is important uh, statistically. Mm. Um, so they basically found um, about 27 uh, states uh to get sample from, they had to they had to um, eliminate a few states because they didn't achieve the sixty percent response rate. Uh, if you don't get that response rate, the CDC doesn't release the data. And then a few states had to be um, excluded because they uh, didn't they had they had some incomplete data. Um, and so in this survey, the the women will get a questionnaire that asks, um, "Did a healthcare worker talk with you about um, a variety of of health topics during pregnancy?" And and it couldn't be a video or or reading material or a handout that they received. It, it was um, a direct face-to-face discussion with a nurse, a midwife, a healthcare provider, uh, somebody. 
Uh, and they asked them about 12 different topics, weight gain, smoking, breastfeeding, alcohol use, seatbelt use, safe medications, illegal drugs, birth defect screening, preterm labor, HIV screening, depression, and intimate partner violence. And so they asked them one by one, did you get asked, did, did someone talk to you about uh, this topic? And they would say yes or no. Does being screened count? Like if you got one of those one or two question screeners for interpersonal or interpartner violence, if you were asked that, did that count? Even if there was no I mean, counseling that went with it? Right. The quality of, of that uh, screening or education or discussion isn't uh, evaluated here, right? It was, um, it was a written survey or it was a, uh, yeah, it was a, a written survey in which they just said mark yes or no. Someone mm-hmm. talked to me about this or not. Um, and they're doing this two to four months after delivery. So mm-hmm. there's there's some recall bias potential here. You're, yeah. you're asking someone to remember something that happened uh, pretty early in their pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, and then for the study purposes, they had to then collapse uh, the receipt of prenatal health education into a binary outcome, yes or no. So they actually said that if the respondent said they got um, uh, counseling on all of those 12 items, that was a yes, mm. <laughs> you received prenatal health education. And then if they said no for any of them, uh, then that's a no. Hmm. Uh, they did look at a couple uh, counseling items individually in the study. That's HIV screening, breastfeeding, alcohol use in pregnancy, and smoking cessation. Um, and then they basically compared it against all the maternal characteristics uh, in, in race, ethnicity, and, and socioeconomic status. status. Uh, they did some controlling, and then they did some logistic regression. Um, they ended up finding 68,000 women. Uh, so pretty good sample size. Uh, it it was relatively representative, 68% white women, 14% Hispanic, 12% non-Hispanic black. Uh, and then they characterized the amount of um, um, the socioeconomic need, 40% were rece- receiving WIC, 50% were privately insured, 39% were Medicaid. So that's a little bit of undersampling of the Medicaid population mm. uh, in this country, uh, since the majority of births are, are um, uh, Medicaid in this country, just over 50%. Uh, so basically, they found that yes, uh, if you're black, um, you're more likely to get prenatal health education. You know, having said yes to all those twelve items, um, more likely if you're Hispanic, more likely if you're American Indian or Alaska Native, Native, uh, more likely if you're multiracial, uh, more likely if you didn't have a high school degree compared to college graduates, more likely if you're low income household, um, more likely if you're on uh, receiving WIC, on Medicaid. Uh, so that's good, right? Like this, the, uh, to 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 launch in, launch into the discussion, um, it's good. People in lower socioeconomic status, people are uh, taking the time, doing the education, doing more teaching. It seems like that's what's happening, or at least what patients are recalling to have happened. Um, the study had had some um, uh, good design qualities, big sample size, oversampled the underrepresented groups. Um, Really, I wanted to talk about this paper because I feel like there's a, a narrative that people um, will use when it comes to uh, improving health disparities or improving um, health outcomes or that kind of uh, drill down to education or knowledge as the root of the disparity that that if we just if if folks just knew more or they had you know more knowledge then they could change their behaviors and they could they could um, uh, make themselves healthier. And um, the study authors really conclude um, uh, disadvantaged women continue to experience disparities uh, despite receiving higher levels of prenatal health education on a variety of health-related topics. 
and 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 this suggests that education is really insufficient in promoting positive behaviors and birth outcomes. Uh, this this really tracks with lots of other parts of the maternal health, the maternal child health data. Like black women in this country who are college educated have lower, uh, I'm sorry, higher rates of term birth and um, infant mortality than their uh, white women counterparts. Actually, I'm, I'm sorry, the white women in this country who have not completed high school education. Right, so these are these are highly educated black women who who suffer worse health outcomes in this country than than uh, than the least educated block of white women. So uh, this all tracks towards for me the idea that you you really can't like educate your way out of uh, some of these health disparities, um, and you know you can talk about putting in that individual effort and it could have a lot of individual impact. Uh, but ultimately, to have a population impact, maybe to uh, move move the needle on some of these disparities, you have to work upstream on context, on socioeconomic factors, and and things beyond just trying to teach people um, to to become healthier, to take on healthier behaviors. Yeah, I think people are really complicated. I had a patient today, actually, I was speaking with her about smoking cessation. She's been a heavy smoker her whole life. She's in her 70s. And she said to me, listen, I know it's bad for me. I know it could give me cancer, but I really like it, and I don't want to quit. I mean, it, it, it's like beyond that too, right? I was talking with somebody who was sharing that they had a patient who, um, you know, had a history of uh, sexual abuse at her um, to, uh, to her uncle, and and smoking actually made uh, made sense to her as a teenager because it made uh, her feel undesirable uh, and protected mm-hmm. her. That cloud of smoke protected her. There's 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 just deep trauma that can be involved with some of these behaviors, uh, and. There's just more to this than just saying we got to teach folks to do th- do things differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I also agree completely. I mean, I think with, with all of those stories you just shared, like education, just because we tell someone what to do or we're trying to teach them what to do doesn't mean that it's in any way related to what their goals are. Um, and so oftentimes, the, you know, it, it doesn't sort of we don't know if if in this survey, while it's really interesting data, whether um, it sort of speaks to more educational theory models of motivational interviewing, whether it takes into account where people are and sort of their stages of changes on different th- on different axes, um, what their goals are, how we can make, you know, pull pull and push in different ways. So Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that yeah. the quality of the teaching here is not being evaluated, right? Just, right. just the fact that it happened. So uh, I think, you know, because there wasn't data prior some people could have said, well, these folks aren't really even getting the education, but that's not the case. It, it, it seems like they're, people are having the discussion. Now, surely we could you know, discuss whether that's adequate or, or um, right. uh, high-quality education, but you know, at the least we can say it's, you know, it's happening. There's something, hap- there's something happening. There's some education happening. Yeah. All right, should we do pearls? Uh, so I just read a book called Life After Life by... Kate Atkinson. It's amazing. The premise is that the main character, Ursula, keeps coming back over and over and dying in different circumstances. And it's wonderful. Everyone should read it. I'm going to bring up what I think, one person who I think is one of the greatest athletes of all time. He's like the Usain Bolt. And he's going under the radar right now. Uh, He's been on my mind partly because I just uh, did my 10th marathon hashtag wow. humble brag <laughs> and uh, yeah thanks 
So Elliot Kipchoge, you should uh, track what he's doing. Uh, he just ran the Berlin Marathon in world record time, smashing the current world record by 78 seconds. Oh he is on a run of, uh, I think, nine straight marathon wins. Um, and uh, he is pretty much the most dominant marathoner of all time. He, he ran the Berlin Marathon with 438-minute mile splits, and then his second half marathon was faster than his first. Uh, he is not only extremely fast, uh, he's extremely consistent, winning in all sorts of different types of races and conditions. Uh, this guy is incredible. Um, he is probably hum- the, the, the human condition's best chance to break two hours uh, in the marathon, which, be, which would, be, would just be the, a phenomenal feat. I mean, up until last year, no one could do it below 202, and he has a good shot, um, good shot to do it under two hours. Mm. I ran a wow. mile a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I was going to have a stemmy, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that, That's very humbling, exactly. <laughs> so I have one book and, and one article uh, to read. The book is a quick one that's a fun one I'm in the middle of right now. It's Michael Pollan's new book, oh, which yeah. is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. I love that's his food books. A mouthful, exactly. A lot of people know him from his from his food books, like Omnivores Dileva, in defense of food. And this one is about, um, in particular, about sort of the science behind um, uh, psilocybin and LSD. Um, mm. Fascinating stuff. Made me really, I'm really sort of rethinking sort of all the stuff that I've been taught about it, as well as looking. And now I've sort of actually found that there's a um, a researcher here locally uh, at Yale who's doing some psilocybin research for PTSD and people with depression, really fascinating stuff. So sort of the research that sort of was ongoing from the 1950s to the 1960s and how it was really halted in the night in 1964. Um, and now there's sort of a resurgence of looking at, um, these compounds, um, for therapeutic use. Um, fascinating book, highly recommend it. Um, and then the article is, um, just a brief one which is um, in New England Journal from November, Becoming a a Caregiver, Lessons from My Dad Mm. by Audrey Provenzano. Um, Just really one of the most touching articles, beautiful piece. I feel so privileged to have read it. Thank you, Audrey. Yeah, Audrey, thank thank you for putting that out there. It was beautiful. Thanks, guys. All right, who wants to take it away? All right. So you've wasted another hour on Car Talk. And I hope I don't get sued by NPR for that. No, you've been listening to Review of Systems. Uh, You can find links to all the papers we talked about on our website, https colon backslash backslash uh, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu and click on ROS podcast at the top as well as an archive of our previous shows. If you enjoyed listening, a quick reminder to please rate and review us wherever you listen and share us with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at David Rosenthal. I'm at Thomas O. Kim. And I'm at Audrey, MDMPH. Or tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and find us on Facebook. Or you can email us at contact at ROSPod.org. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. <laughs>